0: We come this morning to the end of our phrase-by-phrase exposition of the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord of the Prayer provides us, as I've already said, with a very interesting afterword in verses 14 and 15. And this is my translation of it. Therefore, if you forgive other men for their transgressions against you, then your heavenly Father shall also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other men for their transgressions against you, then your Father shall not forgive your transgressions against him. To understand how this seemingly out-of-the-blue statement on the forgiveness of sins ties into uh, the Lord's Prayer, how it relates to everything Christ has been teaching His disciples about prayer, it's going to be helpful to review the foreword to the prayer, which is in uh, verses 7 and 8. "...and when you all are praying, do not chatter meaninglessly like the pagans, for they think that on account of their many words they shall be heard." Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what things you need before you ask Him. What's Christ's purpose in verses 7 and 8? In the foreword to the Lord's Prayer, His purpose is to direct His disciples in powerful, effective prayer that will, in fact, be heard. Notice, He gives a contrast. The heathens think they will be heard, but they won't. They chatter meaninglessly. So much babbling. But if you want to be heard, this is then how you should pray. Not with meaningless repetition, but with meaningful, intelligent speech according to this pattern, which then he gives them in the Lord's Prayer. Basically, what Christ is saying is, do you want God to hear your prayers? Do you want your Heavenly Father to hear your requests, your petitions, to hear you when you open your mouth, in in private or in public, seeking for His help, seeking for His blessing? So do you? Do you want God to hear your prayers? Well, if you do, if so, then don't offer those vain and babbling uh, superstitious prayers as the heathen nations do. Instead, offer sincere, powerful, intelligent prayers from a renewed heart. For these and these alone, God shall hear. That's how Christ introduced his model prayer. In summary... Uh, this model prayer, for the good of his disciples' souls to the glory of God. We see that mirrored in the prayer then. But the clear purpose of the introduction also helps us to understand our text this morning. The afterward, or you might say the post-conclusion, the epilogue of the Lord's Prayer, which is bound together with it. Because both the forward and the afterward address the same thing. That is, matters of the heart. Matters of the disposition of the soul of the disciple when he comes to God in prayer. Notice, they go together. They both deal with our hearts. How it is we come to God in prayer. What it is we are like inside as we pray. Mark 11.25, which is very similar, it's a parallel text to this one, actually brings this out even more clearly for us. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have any, anything against anyone, "...so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions." It's very similar to what we had read before and, and taught upon. That is, if, if you come to worship and you have something against your brother, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to leave your offering at the altar, go and be reconciled, and then come back. Where Christ is using a picture, uh, a picture lesson to teach us that there's something that needs to happen in our hearts. A transaction that needs to take place. A wrong needs to be righted before we can come into communion with God, before we will be heard, before he will receive our worship. The foreword addresses the disciples' heart disposition to God. Are you coming to manipulate God with a bunch of meaningless words? Or are you coming in sincerity and in truth, offering to God petitions that are meaningful and from your heart? And that corresponds to the first half of the prayer, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be uh, done on earth as it is in heaven, where we plead with God to uh, have his way in the earth for his glory. And then the afterward addresses the disciples' heart disposition more directly to other men. Forgive others their transgressions against you. And that corresponds to the second half of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice, pleading with God for our more direct interests in the earth. So, what does the Christian's heart disposition of forgiveness specifically now have to do with our relationship to God in our prayer? This is the lesson for this morning. The forgiveness which we grant from the heart to others demonstrates that our Heavenly Father hears our prayers and forgives us. The forgiveness which we grant from the heart to others demonstrates that our Heavenly Father hears our prayers and forgives us. We're going to unpack this lesson, this teaching, under two headings this morning. Our Heavenly Father's forgiveness in the first place, because that is logically prior to any forgiveness that we can offer to anyone else. And then the demonstration of forgiveness, particularly in our lives, in our spiritual lives. So, our Heavenly Father's forgiveness, and then the demonstration of forgiveness as we consider that the forgiveness which we grant from the heart to others demonstrates that our Heavenly Father hears our prayers and forgives us. So, in the first place, our Heavenly Father's forgiveness... Two things I wish to discuss this morning on this subject, the forgiveness of sins, how the Bible presents the forgiveness of sins in brief, and then fatherly forgiveness, particularly the the significance of Christ referring to God as your heavenly Father in our text in connection to forgiveness and prayer. So in the first place, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Notice in the second half of verse 14 and in the second half of verse 15, we have have a statement on the economy of forgiveness of sins. We have here uh, your heavenly father shall also forgive you and your father shall not forgive your transgressions against him. So two different points the forgiveness of persons and also the forgiveness specifically of transgressions committed by persons by you and me, by sinners. Uh, how does the Bible present them? Uh, how pardon for sin is received or achieved in this life. Well, in the very first place, you must be convicted of your sin. You cannot, be, you cannot receive forgiveness. For that which you do not understand to be a transgression, a crossing against, a wronging of someone, John sixteen eight, uh, Christ teaches his disciples about the Holy Spirit's work in this, and he, when he the Spirit comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Do you understand that from birth you were conceived in sin, and from birth you sinned against God repeatedly? That you have transgressed a holy creator God. Has the Spirit worked that in you? What then is the result? What does conviction of sin look like? Well, the Bible shows us again in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches about the risen Savior at Pentecost. What is the response of the crowds? Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Implied, what shall we do to be forgiven this great sin which we've committed against the Lord of glory, the risen Savior? What shall we do? They're expressing their conviction of sin. And then Jesus says in John chapter 3, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. It's a deathly serious reality that all our transgressions against God deserve his judgment, invite his wrath upon sinners. That's the conviction of sin in a nutshell. Moving on. Having been convicted of sin by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, awakening our consciences to understand that what we've done is indeed an infraction of God's law, an offense against Him, a perfectly holy God, we can then turn to the work that the Spirit does in us to convert us. That is faith and repentance. In regeneration, That is the new birth. John 3.3, 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, that is, born by the Spirit of God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot be brought into the kingdom of light, taken out of the kingdom of darkness, converted, he cannot be given a new allegiance. He cannot even express it. This too is a gift of God's grace by His Spirit. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That is, you can't make it up yourself. The Spirit works it in you. And then Matthew 4.17 A key part of that faith is indeed, it's uh, the other side of the coin of faith, that is repentance. Why Jesus comes in Matthew four seventeen, preaching and saying what? Repent, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Belief that God the Father has lovingly resolved to save sinners like you is at the heart of faith. Belief, being convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God the Father loves to save sinners. And He's expressed that love in Christ. That is at the heart of faith. It's what the Spirit gifts to us. That conviction, um, not just of sin, but the conviction that God is good. Are you convinced of this confession of the gospel? That Christ came to save sinners because God the Father loves sinners and purposed in Christ to do this, that we might then walk in the Spirit, with the Spirit within us. That belief gives birth then to trust in the finished work of Christ, who paid the penalty for all your sin before a just judge. Who propitiated the wrath of God in paul 's terms, or as hebrews ten ten puts it, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, a once for all sacrifice for sinners, trusting in that and not your own merits, not your own sacrifices, but what Christ has done in Christ and in christ 's sacrifice alone is the pardon for sin, the satisfaction of god 's justice. And then in Hebrews 12 12, we're given a picture of repentance unto life, which turns, uh, which involves both turning away from sin, but then also looking very actively to Jesus. Fixing our eyes or looking away on or to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In this Picture that I've given uh, of high points in the doctrine of salvation as presented by the Bible. We see what pardon for sins looks like. The biblical economy, how pardon for sins works. Namely, looking unto Jesus Christ in faith. In full conviction, not only of your sin, but that His sacrifice is sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins. The focus point in our text, in Matthew chapter 6, as it fits into this economy of forgiveness, is the confession of sin and prayer for God's pardoning grace is central to true repentance. What are you doing when you pray for God's forgiveness? When you confess your sins before Him, you're admitting, first of all, that you are indeed a sinner. That you've transgressed Him. And that that's a wrong thing to do. And that there's been a breach of relationship. And you need restoration. And so at the heart of forgiveness of sins in that transaction is our own uh, experience of confessing our sins with a broken heart and asking for God's forgiveness. Asking for Him to pardon us in Christ. Thus... The forgiveness of sins is the forgiveness of transgressions against a holy God. Forgiveness that can be found in no other name but in the name of Jesus. You must believe that for this text to make any sense at all. And you must believe that it is the Father's purpose, we might say his desire in a mysterious way, to love sinners and to pardon them in Christ. Well, This forgiveness is indeed the forgiveness of a heavenly father, as Jesus says. If you forgive other men for their transgressions against you, then your heavenly Father shall also forgive you. If you do not forgive other men for their transgressions against you, then your Father shall not forgive your transgressions against Him. And this is very interesting. Two times in our verses, Christ mentions God as Father, or our Father, your Father. He does this 12 times in Matthew chapter 6. Do you know how many times God is referred to as Father in the whole Old Testament? About 12 times. And in this one chapter, Jesus will refer to God as Father a dozen times. Obviously, that's a point of emphasis here in the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in prayer. How do we address God as our Father who art in heaven? So what does this have to do with uh, forgiveness and prayer? Well, we confess that God Almighty in saving us not only has forgiven us, not only has granted us the righteousness of Christ through faith in union with Him, but also counts us in the number of His adopted children, as is emphasized in Luke's gospel. We're seated around the table as sons and daughters of God. And it's an amazing and glorious reality. It's amazing doctrine of adoption. For Christ's sake, God is not only our God but our heavenly Father. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 12, on adoption, uh, gives us a beautiful expression of this. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth, or guarantees, in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Namely, they have His name put upon them, they receive the spirit of adoption, They have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, not as by a slaver, but as by a father, yet never cast off but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. I think it was John Murray described this as the apex of the Christian doctrine of salvation. Brothers and sisters, we are not merely servants, though that would be a noble and high calling to be servants of the Most High God. We are sons and daughters of God with all the privileges and liberties that are attached to that. The one that really sticks out to me in terms of our text and considering the Lord's Prayer and Christ's teaching on prayer is when we pray, our Father hears us. Now, your earthly fathers are not perfect, and sometimes you need to repeat things to your fathers. I just read a joke. Uh, Never uh, is a man more surprised than the second time he hears something from one of his children. It's because he didn't hear it the first time. But God our Father is not like us. He hears us perfectly whenever we approach Him. We can come before Him with bold and free access to the throne of grace because we are His beloved children and He is perfect in His attentions upon us. Indeed, chief among the privileges of this adoption is this free, this needful, what we need, access to the throne of grace in prayer daily, continually. He hears us when we pray for forgiveness of sins. He hears us and he grants that assurance of pardon. With a devoted and unchangeable love for his children, God delights in forgiving you through Christ Jesus. His forgiveness is a fatherly forgiveness. Having this basic biblical understanding of the way of salvation, especially of uh, the forgiveness of sins, of pardon for sins, is absolutely necessary to make sense of our passage this morning. It's what's in the background of what Jesus says here. If you rip verses 14 and 15 out of their biblical context, as so many do. You risk getting everything backwards because then these verses could actually be interpreted uh, wrongly but plausibly when taken out of context as teaching some kind of quid uh, quo pro, some kind of this for that exchange, some kind of uh, scheme of merit. That is that forgiveness with God is the meritorious result of our forgiving others. But that is emphatically not what Jesus is teaching Rather, in agreement with his opening statements in the Sermon on the Mount, he's concerned with teaching his disciples something crucially important about salvation in and through him. If they do not possess a forgiving disposition toward others, God will not hear them when they confess their sins against him as part of their regular prayer life. But... This forgiving disposition itself is a demonstration of the grace of the Spirit of God in their own hearts. It is God's Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, which turns them from the selfishness of revenge to the renewed humanity of selfless mercy displayed by sincere forgiveness of others. It's to that demonstration of forgiveness then that we will proceed and turn under our second heading. In the demonstration of forgiveness, there's two things we need to consider, and that is the forgiveness of fellow men. What, what it, does it mean to forgive other men their transgressions against you? But then also, the effects on our lived faith, on the effects on our Christian life. What effect does being ready to forgive others, indeed, Of forgiving others, their their transgressions against you. What effect does that have on your spiritual life before God? Coram Deo, before the face of God. So first, forgiveness of fellow men. What are we forgiving? The point's already been made under the first heading when we're considering what God forgives. that He forgives our transgressions, our wrongs against Him as a holy God. In the same token, Jesus uses the same word for us. We forgive the wrongs committed against us, much like as we saw in Genesis chapter 50. The transgressions of Joseph's brothers against him are precisely what it was that he forgave as he uh, expressed his kindness to them, his compassion for them. So what are we forgiving? Transgressions. We might translate this word as wrongs or being crossed against. Basically, it's sins and offenses. Anything that grates against us. Particularly anything that puts us in a disadvantageous position. Anything that hurts us. Uh, boys and girls, if if your brother or your sister take the last roll off of the, out of the dining, um, the dining room bowl of, of bread. And you wanted that last roll. You might say, well, he or she transgressed you. He wronged you. He certainly offended you by taking that which you wanted. Perhaps even that which you claimed for yourself. But are you ready to forgive that offense once it comes to light? If he or she comes to you and says, Will you forgive me? I shouldn't have taken that last piece of bread. You claimed it. It was yours. But man, I just, I was selfish. Can you forgive me? Are you ready to forgive? Or do you harbor bitterness in your heart? And this is something we all wrestle with, isn't it? Now, what is and is not forgiveness? Well, as it's used here in our text, forgiveness is a disposition. It's a commitment not to harbor ill will, not to pursue revenge, not to go after someone, their person, their property, uh, their reputation, their family, their associates, their friends, uh, out of spite. It's to basically be like Joseph, having no concern at all to seek the destruction of the person who has wronged you. It's not a denial of the consequences of law breaking. It's not a denial of justice, but it is a readiness to forgive at the personal level. It's also not a rejection of wisdom in dealing with people who consistently take advantage of or abuse others. In fact, it's important to say this, especially in church and family contexts. It is absolutely not tolerance of abuse of any kind. Readiness to forgive does not mean foolishly tolerating abuse of others or of yourself. The sixth commandment, one of the positive duties is to protect the lives of ourselves and others. And certainly, uh, all of the commandments involve an active uh, protecting of others in the various categories under which they fall. But this forgiveness that Jesus talks about is a readiness to forgive and to reconcile. It's... um, It's a readiness to forgive even if ongoing relationship will involve certain boundaries that did not exist before a wrong was committed. So we acknowledge that there are consequences when we're wronged, but are you ready to forgive and to maintain some uh, kind disposition in relationship with someone? It's, It's really more of a, do you seek revenge for someone out of spite or do you pity them? And wish that you could be right with them again. How do we forgive them? Well, positively, we seek for the good of others, as Joseph did for his brothers, providing for them and their little ones. But we especially and fundamentally do this, as our text makes clear, in prayer. We pray for others. If you're ready, you can't can't hate somebody you pray for. You love someone you pray for, and you foster that love by praying for them. So, I put this before you. Take stock of your relationships. Ask yourself, um, is there someone about whom I am harboring bad, ill will? Is there someone about whom I'm bitter that every time I think of them, my, my spirit recoils like a snake ready to strike? If so, why? And if that person were to come to you seeking forgiveness, seeking reconciliation, would your heart have compassion? Would you desire then to offer that, that love to that person. And if not, why not? What's wrong there? Remember the warnings that Jesus gives to his disciples. We'll look at them uh, as we work through Matthew. In Matthew 7-2, In the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And in Matthew 18, which we read, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And so if you harbor this bitterness and this hatred and this rejection, this utter uh, repulsion about somebody else, be warned. Jesus is saying to you, so too will your Father judge, repel, and despise you. The gravity of this, the weight of it, cannot be overemphasized. But what do you do about the person who does not seek your forgiveness. Is it even possible to forgive such a transgressor, the Dylan Roof's of the world? The young man who marched into a prayer meeting in Charleston several years ago and took the lives of a group of people who were just there to pray. And then when confronted with expressions of willingness to forgive in the courtroom, showed no remorse... And in jail was reported, he even bragged about his deeds and misdeeds. He had no interest in reconciliation. He had no interest in forgiveness. Can you forgive someone like that? Properly understood, you really cannot be reconciled to somebody who is actively uh, rejecting relationship with you. You can't have a restoration of relationship if that person rejects such a uh, rejection. But you can, like those dear folks in the courtroom that I referenced, you can resolve not to harbor hatred, not to harbor bitterness in your heart toward that person. You can choose instead the way of lament rather than the way of hate and bitterness. You and I may not be able to build a bridge over a great canyon, separating you or me from those who transgress against us, but we can certainly desire for a way, can't we? And the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. And thus we pray. And that brings us then to the effects that this forgiveness, this demonstration of forgiveness would have in our own lives, what this would look like in our lives. Well, the first effect is purity of heart, which is something that Jesus has already talked about in Matthew chapter 5. You see, true and sincere readiness to forgive others is a work of the Spirit of God in our hearts, as I've already mentioned, and specifically, it's a working of purification, of sanctifying our hearts that we might will this one thing, reconciliation between man and man to the glory of God. Purity of heart this side of heaven is not perfection of heart. We will not achieve that before glory. But forgiveness, which does not come easily, if it comes at all, shall come in truth and in sincerity because the Spirit is producing this fruit of spiritual life in a heart that has been renewed or reborn, that is, made Good. Jesus later on in Matthew's gospel will talk about good trees and bad trees, good fruit and bad fruit. We go from producing the bad fruit of bitterness to producing the good fruit of, of life and forgiveness. Why? Because of the work of the Spirit renewing us, planting us anew beside streams of living water. Are you wanting reconciliation with that person who has crossed you? Do you really desire that? Truly. then your readiness to forgive demonstrates that God is at work in you, sanctifying you by His Word and His Spirit. Remember the fifth and the sixth Beatitudes from chapter 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See that golden link between mercy and forgiveness and purity of heart and then beholding God in His goodness and His grace through Christ Jesus. If you are ready to forgive those who have wronged you, then you are not weak-willed, you're not a pushover, no matter what the world says. Brother and sister, you are blessed, flourishing in God's true sight, being prepared to behold Him in Christ Jesus for all eternity with joy and delight. That's what Christ is saying. That's one effect here. You can be assured of that. You can have this assurance of grace and salvation to put a finer point on it as a second effect. Our Confession of Faith, chapter 18, paragraph 2, speaking of assurance of salvation, says this. Uh, One thing is you, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises of salvation are made. That inward evidence grants us or works in us by the Spirit of God assurance of salvation. Not only does the fruit of forgiveness and a forgiving spirit in our lives serve as a support for assurance. Of salvation, But the next clause in the confession includes the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. And so, can you truly call upon God as Heavenly Father, as our Father who art in Heaven? If so, this too is a work of the Spirit that strengthens our assurance of salvation. If you forgive others, you can with all confidence address God as Father, for you know that He has adopted you and granted you this spirit of forgiveness. And thus you can be assured, as Christ shows us, that we can know Him as our Heavenly Father, if and only if we are ready to forgive other men their transgressions against us. But what about the problem of imprecatory prayers and psalms? Perhaps we should sing them more often than we do. And Dr. Pipe and I have discussed incorporating them more in the life of the church, that we might be educated and instructed on the place of imprecation, these psalms that involve cursing of the enemies of God and of His people. So what do we do with them? You know, C.S. Lewis suggested that we throw them out, that they're not fitting for Christians. C.S. Lewis is pretty smart, but he's wrong on that score. The psalms have been given to us for our use For the shaping of our hearts. You see, these imprecatory psalms, these prayers that we pray against the enemies of God, against Satan and his kingdom and his minions, these prayers are for God to take action, not plans or resolutions for our taking matters into our own hands. So we're not laying out a scheme of vigilanteism or of seeking revenge for ourselves, but we are asking for God to execute justice because that will bring about the glory of God. And so the proper response to being wronged is to pursue appropriate channels for justice or restitution and thus then to leave the results to God. It's not wrong. Therefore, for Christians to support the magistrate's right of wielding the power of the sword for the punishment of wrongdoers. It's not wrong, perhaps, to seek criminal charges against someone who, uh, who does something criminally against you. It's also not wrong not to seek criminal charges. There is a matter of wisdom here in this. But, when we pray the Psalms of imprecation, or when we sing them, we don't make those imprecatory prayers about particular people in our lives. We generalize about the enemies of God and of His church, namely the world, the flesh, and the devil. Thus, These kinds of prayers, these prayers of imprecation, are altogether appropriate for the forgiving disciple of Christ to use. Because Christ himself would have sung these prayers, would have prayed them with those same words on occasion, without any sin in doing so. He would even recite such prayers... And then be able to say, from the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Offering up that great prayer of mercy. Did God the Father hear His Son when from the cross He prayed for those murderous crowds on the day of His crucifixion? Well, Beyond a shadow of any doubt at all, the Father did indeed hear the Son. We know he did from the effects of Peter's preaching at Pentecost, which I already mentioned, when many of those very same men who had cried out for Christ's blood to be spilled on Calvary's tree were supernaturally cut to the heart, convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit, and then turned in faith and repentance to the risen Savior whom they had crucified. But... We know as well that the Father heard the Son who cried out in the Spirit because as Christ taught His disciples, the forgiveness which we grant from the heart to others demonstrates that our Heavenly Father hears our prayers and in our case, forgives us. There was no offense for the Father to forgive in Christ's life. Jesus was completely without sin. He could not sin. He was perfect without sin in every way. But we do well to remember this, that God the Father hears the cry of the faithfully forgiving man. Even, and perhaps especially, the cry offered up from a torture device, from the cross. This Christ taught us by word and deed. He taught us in his teaching here in Matthew 6, but he also taught us by his example. In that prayer he offered up from the cross, which his Father heard. And so this, we, his disciples, as his students, indeed as the objects of his love, as the people that he prayed for, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. We must likewise be forgiving if we are to be heard by our Father in heaven. Paul offers these two exhortations in his epistles in Ephesians chapter 4:23 or 4:32 he says be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you and in Colossians 3:13 bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the lord forgave you so also should you As you examine your life and as you consider the effectiveness of your prayers and the time spent in prayer, can you say, I am a forgiving man or woman. I am a child of God bearing likeness unto him and my elder brother. If not, why not bring that to the Lord and plead for it, for it's his will to work that in you as a fruit of the work of the Spirit of grace. And indeed, it is absolutely necessary for us. Let us pray. Our Lord God in heaven, we come to you as forgiven men and women in Christ Jesus, confident that you do hear us, for you have forgiven us already. But we confess, O Lord, that it is so hard for us to cast off the selfishness, to root out the bitterness, to offer up prayers for forgiveness, knowing that we indeed are ready to forgive ourselves, others, their transgressions against us. And so we plead with you, O God, work this fruit of the Spirit in us in ever greater measure. We pray that you would make us more forgiving. That this manifestation of your grace in our lives would be evident as we look in the mirror and consider our own lives. But also evident to those around us, spurring on our brothers and sisters in good deeds. We pray that you would reconcile us to those around us where there are breaches of relationship. That you would cast out all ill will. Make us more like Jesus. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom in the pursuit of justice in this world. In the condemnation of abuse. In the shining light on wrongs. While also seeking for mercy and compassion even to wrongdoers. Lord, we pray for repentance. Teach us repentance unto life, that we might draw near unto you in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cacheville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.